When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, and thank you for joining me for the 138th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is triggering hardwired instinctive responses. I have the good fortune to be joined by Nancy Harhut. She is the author of Using Behavioral Science in Marketing, Drive Customer Action and Loyalty by Prompting Instinctive Responses. The publisher is Kogan Page. Nancy is co-founder and chief creative officer at HBT Marketing, whose clients have included H&R Block, AARP, Four Seasons, and Transamerica. Those roles were preceded by holding senior creative positions at advertising agencies within the IPG and Publis networks. She has been recognized as an online marketing institute, top 40 digital strategist, and ad club top 100 creative influencer. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Thank you so much, Dan. Happy to be here. Wonderful. So um, briefly, an overview of the book, if you don't mind. Sure. So using behavioral science and marketing is for anyone who finds that they have marketing on their to-do list. And what it does is it gives them a added advantage in terms of getting people to engage with and respond to their marketing messages. And the way it does this is it gives very practical, actionable tactics that show you how to create messages in a brain-friendly way. And when I say brain-friendly way, I mean a way that is more likely to be noticed, understood, responded to, and remembered. Because behavioral scientists have found that even though we think people make these well-thought-out, well-considered decisions, very often what's going on is they are relying on decision-making shortcuts. They're defaulting to certain hardwired, automatic, instinctive responses. In the book, shows you, demonstrates how to easily, effectively, and at no extra cost, add (laughs) the prompts that will trigger these automatic responses to your strategies and more specifically to your creative executions, to your emails, your ads, your direct mail, your social posts. So that's what the book is about. Okay, so you know what I get it from that is you know we're kind of uh, often much more in default mode than we think we are. We we think that we're thinking, but uh, really other things are going on for us. So just in a contextual framework for a moment. So obviously in the last fifteen years, uh, the field you're in, marketing has changed a lot. We're we're online. Uh, you know we got social media play. If we look at that world where we're maybe using search engines and tracking down articles or, or scrolling through our phone, is that really any different than being a couch potato and taking in TV commercials? 
Well, you know, um, there are certainly differences, but from the perspective of of my book, no. What you're going to read, what you're going to discover in that book is applicable, whether you're having a face-to-face conversation uh, with your prospects or your clients or your boss or your spouse or your kid, right? It's a face-to-face conversation or whether you're writing an email or direct mail or creating a print ad or, you know, posting um, a blog. The the behavioral um, science in, in the book is widely applicable, you know, and it's because it's based on these hardwired decisions that humans have developed literally over the millennia as a way to conserve mental energy. We've developed these as a way to conserve mental energy. And as a result, we see a, a certain uh, situation, we, we find a cer- certain situation, and we just automatically default to these hardwired behaviors because it, it helps us save energy. You know, for example, if, um, if you don't have a clear preference for something, if you don't absolutely know what you want, and you have three choices, People just automatically gravitate toward that center choice. It, it feels safe. It feels like they're they're comfortable there. That they're not going to make a bad decision. Um, an, another example is the idea of loss aversion. Uh, it'll behavioral scientists have found that people are actually twice as motivated to avoid the pain of loss as they are to achieve the pleasure of gain. But what do we do in marketing? We double down on the gains. We talk about the the advantages, the gains, the benefits, all the wonderful things that will happen if you, you know, respond to my email, if you click that button, if you, you know, say yes to my request. And and we know that benefits work. I'm not suggesting we walk away from them, but a little well-placed loss aversion can go a long way. Instead of saying, uh, take advantage of, we say, don't miss out on. Uh, instead of saying you can save today, we say you'll pay more tomorrow. But these are uh, easy to apply, but very powerful tactics that trigger these automatic hardwired responses that that all humans have. Okay. Well, I'm going to take you out of default mode and, and make you stretch a little bit, if you don't mind. So in the book, you have all of these various principles and biases that uh, show us operating in default mode. Uh, some people, some business writers have looked at the traditional business categories uh, and they have thought of them more in terms of emotional markets. So if you don't mind, I was going to, there's six of them, and I was going to briefly touch on each, and maybe there's a principle, maybe there's a couple of principles that really come to, to mind that uh, help illuminate how you might, uh, you know, attract or play in this emotional market. So one of them would be self-expression. This is where you're signaling status, uh, maybe staging your own identity. Uh, prime example might be the kind of automobile you choose for yourself, uh, also in retail, the clothing you might choose. Yeah, so... Two things actually spring to mind, two behavioral science principles that I think are very applicable here. One is this idea of scarcity. What behavioral scientists have found is people value things that are scarce. And this likely goes way back to our ancient ancestors where, you know, there were limited supplies of of, uh, resources, food, water, for example. And if you didn't get yours, you might end up dying because of it. So if something is is scarce, if there's not a lot of it, we automatically gravitate toward it. We want it. Uh, we, we value it more. So that applies both in terms of limited quantities or limited times, but also in, in terms of the idea of exclusivity. There's something that's available, but not to everyone. It's only available to certain people. So if we choose uh, a certain automobile to drive or we choose certain, you know, perhaps designer clothes, what we're doing is we're, you know, we're suggesting that we're a little special, we're a little exclusive, we're, we're kind of sending that message to the world. But but the, the other one that also applies is the idea of social proof. And what behavioral scientists have found is when we're not certain of what decision to make, 
what we'll do is we'll look around, we'll see what other people are doing, and we'll follow their lead, particularly if those other people are similar to us. We do that because we feel, all right, this is a safe choice. We assume that those other people know something that we don't know. And and as a result, we're not going to go wrong if we follow their lead. So if we find ourselves, you know, eating at the same restaurant that a lot of people do, we're buying the same brand name, uh, clothes or car or, or, you know, really any kind of a product that other people do. It's because that makes us feel safe. It makes us feel secure. It makes us feel confident that we're, we're not making the wrong move. Okay. So what I hear in one case with uh, scarcity is we want to stand out to be exclusive, but uh, another mode might be we actually want to fit in and uh, make sure we belong and, uh, you know, we're in that, uh, that safe middle. Um, exploration. So we have physical and intellectual stimulation we're seeking. Uh, curiosity is something that's new. Uh, entertainment choices could come to mind here, but maybe even more so uh, computers and electronics we might uh, be interested in exploring. So yeah, I think the idea of of, uh, of exploration uh, makes me think of, of a couple of different behavioral science principles. One of them is something called information gap theory, and um, it, it's this idea that if there's a gap between what you know and what you want to know, you will take action to close the gap. So if there's a gap between what you know and what you want to know, you'll take action to close the gap. And um, you know, we're, we're in marketing, we want people to take action, right? That's, that's the whole reason uh, that we're in this business. We're trying to motivate behavior, we're trying to motivate action. So anytime we can point out an information gap, that's a very good thing because when people realize that there's something that they want to know that they don't yet know, they'll, they'll pursue it. They'll try to find out, you know, they'll, they'll uh, pursue the information. So anytime we can use words like who, what, where, when, why, how, uh, the best, the worst, the most, the least, you know, we're, what we're doing is we're kind of shining a light on that gap in information. We're teeing up that information gap. And that's what, you know, prompts people to, um, to then take action. And then similarly related to that is the idea of novelty. And what behavioral scientists have found is human beings are, are hardwired to seek out the new and novel. And the reason we seek out the new and novel is when we find something that we think is new, it activates the reward center or the pleasure center in our brain, and that releases dopamine. And dopamine, among other things, is the feel-good chemical. So we get that, that rush of dopamine. It feels really good. And as a result, we're constantly jonesing for that next hit of dopamine. We're constantly looking for that next new thing because when we think we found it, we get that rush of dopamine. So that would that would explain uh partially at least, why people seek new experiences, new adventures, why they push the boundaries, why they're, you know, they're, they're looking to try something new. They, they want to get that hit of dopamine. They, they you know, they, they want to kind of, you know, get that, that rush, that, that feel-good feeling. Wonderful answer. Um, interpersonal, another market, um, relationships, romance, family, friends, um, restaurant choices, uh, you know, that we, we drink the same sort of beer or wine, uh, for instance, might be a fit here. Sure. Uh, so a couple of things actually spring to mind there. I mean, if we're drinking the, you know, the same kind of beer or wine as our, our friends or as, as other people, uh, I think about the principle of liking. You know, we, we have a tendency to uh, be more interested in ourselves than in anyone else. And we have a, a tendency to like the things that remind us of ourselves. So people who do what we do, people who seem similar to us, we, we just have this automatic bond. So by eating and drinking some of the same things that other people do, uh, that, that signals, oh, this is, this is someone I'm going to like. So, so there's that. And then there's also the idea of um, what we're talking about, like uh, relationships and, and uh, you know, interpersonal interactions. There's the idea of reciprocity. And what behavioral scientists have found is when someone 
does something for us, we feel the need to answer in kind. We like to return the favor. And it turns out that this is true whether or not we asked for the the favor, whether or not we asked for the gift. Once we're in possession of it, now we feel we need to settle the score. We don't like to feel like we're somehow in debt. We don't like to feel like we owe. And uh, as a result, sometimes we'll even answer uh, with, uh, you know, with more than the initial uh, gift was just to kind of get out of that, that feeling that we owe you something. So if somebody does something for you, you know, you feel like, all right, I'm going to return the favor. There was a, um, a researcher out of Brigham Young University, and he ran this experiment. He went through a phone book and he selected names of total strangers and <laughs> he sent these total strangers Christmas cards. And he watched to see what would happen. And uh, what happened was a large number of people sent him Christmas cards back. So imagine, you know, you're, you're home and you get this Christmas card and you're like, honey, you know, do you know the Harhuts? You know, and your spouse is like, no, nah, I don't know the Harhuts. And I'm like, well, the Harhuts sent us a Christmas card. I guess we should send them one back. And that's exactly what people did. They're like, I don't know who these people are, but they sent us a card. We should, we should send them mm-hmm. one back. And this particular researcher said that for years afterwards, he would still receive Christmas cards from these random strangers. And some of them would even put in little notes, you know, about what <laughs> the family was up to, where, where they went on vacation last year, you know, little Johnny hit his first home run in little league, you know, but it's, it's just really interesting. We feel this, this desire, this need to, you know, to pay back, to, to not owe people, to cooperate. And, uh, and I think that's a very strong driver that, that speaks to these uh, relationships and interpersonal skills. Okay. Um, we got three more markets, emotional markets. Um, causes. This is where you're trying to fulfill on one's beliefs as a source of meaning in life. So, uh, you know, uh, personal care might come up here, your financial choices in terms of investing, uh, maybe your food choices, you know, you're a vegetarian, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think um, one behavioral science principle that fits nicely in, in this area is the notion of, of self-image or self-concept, and that is how we see ourselves and how we project that image to the rest of the world. So the choices that we make reflect how we see ourselves. So it's, it's not just, um, you know, the I'm, I'm a woman, I'm, you know, uh, of a certain descent, I have, I'm a certain age, I live in a certain place. It, it's not just that, it's more, you know, the, the choices that we make, the things that we believe in, the, the way we want to project ourselves to the world. That's what kind of embodies the, the idea of self-image or, or self-concept. And that would really, I believe, influence some of the things that you're talking about, some of the choices that we make, um, not only in terms of um, places that we belong, clubs that we belong to, products that we buy, but even uh, causes that we support, charities that we support. You know, the idea of walking around with that T-shirt or that tote bag or driving around with that bumper sticker saying that you support a particular charity is, is another way of, um, you know, showing, you know, signaling uh, self-concept or self-image. And I think that fits very nicely in, into this particular emotion. Okay. Um, Second to the last one, nurturing. So taking care of others, physical and emotional health, obviously personal care comes up here, Uh, drug choices, uh, you know, in pharmaceutical sense, Uh, maybe the telephone, the ways you communicate, connect with people, Um, just a few possibilities. Sure, Dan. So I think you know, I'm hearing things like uh, connecting with people. I'm, I'm hearing things about like health. And what immediately springs to mind is the idea of emotion, because emotion is what really drives decisions. And particularly in those areas, I see emotion being a big driver. The truth of the matter is, behavioral scientists have found that 
across the board, we make decisions for emotional reasons, and then we later justify those decisions to ourselves and to other people with rational, logical reasons. But at, at the the foundation at the base of every decision we make, whether it's in a business to consumer environment or a business to business environment, you know, it's emotion that's driving it. We make decisions for emotional reasons. And I think that's even heightened when you're talking about some of the categories you mentioned, you know, healthcare and, and communication, telecommunication, uh, because that's, uh, you know, there's, there's such a strong personal component to that. Um, what about um, you know another one in your book, consistency? Could that possibly apply? I'm thinking that you know I've done a lot of work in the healthcare field, and you know you talk to any patient, and what they really want most is to get back to the life they used to have uh, before some affliction happened to them. Is there any way which you might see? I could be off base, and that's fine. Uh, I won't take a front if you think otherwise. But I'm wondering if consistency could also possibly have a play there in in nurturing that you want to be steadfast you want that person to feel like there's continuity to their life that they're not falling off the off the wheel yeah i, I think you know consistency or, or um you know another way to express that is kind of status quo bias that we you know we feel very comfortable with the way things are and we really don't like to change them you know it, there's just such a strong pull of inertia to to stay where we are and uh you know and, and to not alter that and you know and then you know there's there's also a little bit of blending into that would be nostalgia you know we, we look back on the past with um you know rose-colored lenses and we feel you know much warmer and and, and much happier about some of the things that happened in the past when maybe while we were living at that particular time, we were very cognizant of the ups and the downs. But when time passes, we have a tendency to forget the downs and only remember the ups. So I, I think there's um, there are a few things there. There's there's that idea of not having any changes, that idea of looking back to the past as maybe being rosier than it was, um, and and just this need for for consistency for not for not changing. So so yeah, I you think know, that, that I, I, the, I think those are better answers than the one I was maybe thinking of. So I, I like those very much. So we got just one left. This is affirmation. Uh, it could be physical rejuvenation, uh, stress reduction, uh, emotional uplift. Um, you know, so the kind of vacation choices one makes. You know, could be an influence here. Uh, again, you know, soft drinks, beer, wine. Uh, there's lots of places you could take this, but physical rejuvenation. Yeah, I, you know, we, you know, we've talked about, um, we've, we've talked about a few things. We've talked about emotion. We've talked about social proof. We've talked about self-concept. All of those might fit in. But the other one that we haven't mentioned that I think might play a role here is the idea of autonomy bias. And Uh. autonomy bias is this deep-seated desire to exercise some kind of control over ourselves and our environments. And what allows us to exercise control is having choices. And so simply having a choice and being able to make that choice, exercise that choice, makes us feel great. It, it, it just, you know, fuels us. It feeds us. And so the idea of being able to make choices that, that affirm our outlook on life, that, that affirm our, our likes, that affirm our, you know, our, our preferences, but, but really just at, at, the, at the base of it all is just being able to make the choice. It, you know, that kind of uh, fuels the idea of autonomy. And that is such a powerful driver for people that um, I, I think that the idea of affirmation and autonomy are very closely linked. I think that's a wonderful answer. I mean, all of your answers have been wonderful in this regard. So I wanted to go to shift gears a little bit here before we run out of time. Uh, early in the book, it, you mentioned that uh, there are people who think they're they're not in the market, but there are ways in which to kind of place them in the market without them maybe even realizing it. So I was intrigued by that, and I'm wondering how one pulls off that feat. <laughs> 
oh, you got to buy the book. No, <laughs> um, I would be happy to share that with you. One of the things that I recommend to my clients when they're in a situation a situation like that where they're dealing with a target market and that target market thinks, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't really need this. I don't have a need for it. Is what we want to do is we want to trigger something called availability bias, and the way that works is. What you want to do is before you ask somebody to buy, you want to first get them to think of a time in the past when if they had your product or service, it would have really come in handy. Or you want to get them to imagine a time in the future when they could see themselves benefiting from your product or service. Because the way availability bias works is we have a tendency to judge the likelihood of something happening based on how easily we can recall an example. So, I mean, if you're if you're someone who's never flown and someone says to you, Dan, how safe is it to fly? You might say, well, I don't really have any firsthand experience, but let me think about this. And right away, you would think about news reports that you've read or movies that you've seen. And, and you would say, gosh, a lot of them seem to end up with plane crashes, with with casualties, with you know engine parts falling off the plane <laughs> and the plane immediately rushing back to where it just took off from and trying to do an emergency landing. And you might, you know, these all these stories would immediately flood your brain and you would think to yourself, wow, it's not all that safe to fly. So, you know, what does this have to do with marketing? Well, again, people are going to judge the likelihood of whether or not they need your product or service based on, you know, how readily they can recall a relevant example. So before we ask them to buy, we first get them to think of a time in the past when if they'd had your product, it would be a really good one or, a really, you know, it would have been really good. Or we get them to imagine using it in the future and, and seeing that it could be very beneficial. You know, maybe you're selling uh, life insurance and, you know, you might open by saying, you know, do you know anyone who passed away unexpectedly and left their family with uh, a, a tough financial situation? And most of us have heard stories like that. Maybe we even, you know, know somebody. And then from there, we go into the pitch for why you should purchase some life insurance. But availability bias can be a very good way to kind of open the door and get people who maybe at first blush think, nah, I don't need the product, not <laughs> interested in the service, to realize they do. Okay. And just one last question before we wrap up here. What most surprised you? I mean, we, we live in default mode. We think less than we think we think. Uh, but you, you probably had some new thoughts as you were writing this book, some new connections. What was maybe one standout uh, surprising revelation for yourself in, in pulling this together? You know, the thing that comes to mind right away had to do with autonomy bias. And, and again, you know, we, we said that autonomy bias is this deep-seated need to exercise some kind of control over ourselves and our environments. And as I was researching this principle a little bit more, I found this study. And the study was done at a, you know, nursing home or, you know, a assisted living facility, a home, you know, for aged people, call it what you will. But And they had a test group and a control group. And the control group was given a plant to grow. Uh, in the room and they were given a movie to watch every night and the test group was given a choice of which plant they wanted to grow in the room and which movie they wanted to watch every night. 18 months later there were way more deaths in the control group than in the test group, the test group that had just a little bit of autonomy. They could choose which plant they wanted to grow. They uh. could choose which movie they want. So it's, you know, it's been, I mean, I'm talking about this in the context of marketing, but I found that study in, I mean, that's the context of life or death, you know, just yeah, absolutely. such a huge need to, to have some kind of control, to exercise just a little bit of agency literally impacted people's lifespans. That was surprising to me. That was eye-opening to me. No, that's a wonderful example. That that is eye-opening. That's that's staggering, actually. Um, so I want to thank you, Nancy, so much for being my guest. This has been episode one hundred and thirty-eight, uh, called "Triggering Hard 
hardwired instinctive responses. Nancy Harhut is the author of Using Behavioral Science in Marketing, Drive Customer Action and Loyalty by Prompting Instinctive Responses. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In this case, I took one from a man named Jeff Richards who said, creative without strategy is called art. Creative with strategy is called advertising. Until next time, take care and be well. Thank you.